Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we saw how peasant rebellions started all over Scandinavia, not only in Sweden, where it had begun under the leadership of the late and lamented Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson, but also in Finland and Norway. The common denominator for all these rebellions was widespread resentment against high taxes and the brutal ways used to collect said taxes, and the fact that the king, Erik of Pomerania, and the men he'd put in charge ignored this resentment. Until it boiled over and a rebellion erupted. The local nobility, who in theory was supposed to side with the king and help him suppress this kind of rebellions, either joined these uprisings or exploited them to squeeze concessions from the king Eric. These concessions usually included the king handing over, or back, powers to the council of the realm that he, or even Margaret back in her day, had taken for themselves. Very rarely did these concessions include lower taxes for the peasants. And since the underlying issue wasn't addressed properly, it was only a question of time until another rebellion would break out. That way, the 1430s were characterized by one peasant rebellion after another. You have to admire the peasants for their tenacity, especially if you take into account that the flames of these uprisings were all eventually put out, usually drowned in the blood of their participants. This time, we'll switch perspectives again and return to King Eric. What was he up to during these years of seemingly never-ending peasant revolts? And would he be able to hold on to his increasingly wobbly throne? Episode 62, Exit Eric. Following the meeting in Kalmar, formally ending the Engelbrecht Rebellion, the Danish and Swedish councils started to grow closer. The Danes tried to force a Swedish form of government on the king in Denmark as well. The king resisted, since he liked the power the Danish law gave him. This created tension in Denmark that Erik, with his usual lack of diplomatic finesse, did absolutely nothing to ease. On the contrary, as we'll see. As I mentioned last time, the king and the Swedish nobility were supposed to meet up in Söderköping, but King Erik ended up in a storm, his ships were scattered, and he never made it to that meeting. Apparently, he didn't even bother letting people know he was okay, because the council members and other high-ranking nobles assumed he was dead and started to divide the country between themselves. All Erik's governors were fired and replaced by Swedes. But King Erik wasn't dead, and eventually he learned what the Swedish nobility had been up to in Söderköping when they thought he was. It shouldn't come as an enormous shock to anyone, really, that Eric didn't like what he heard. He never confirmed the decisions made in Söderköping, but the Swedish nobles didn't care much. As far as they were concerned, Eric might not be dead, but he could just as well have been. And, spoiler alert, they weren't exactly wrong in that assessment. Eric would never really regain his control over Sweden. Even though there weren't any major peasant revolts in Denmark at this time, that doesn't mean that King Eric's life was smooth and conflict-free in the richest of his three kingdoms. Just as so often was the case, Eric once again was the architect behind his own trouble. As I mentioned a minute ago, there was growing tension between the Council of the Realm and the King, and instead of trying to mollify the council members by introducing a Swedish-style power-sharing arrangement, King Eric provoked them by trying to go beyond the already considerable powers of the Danish King. 
He insisted that the Danish council recognize a relative of his from Pomerania, a bloke by the name of Bogislav, as steward of Denmark, with an eye of easing him into the role of King Eric's heir. The council flatly refused, and their relations with the king didn't improve when Eric announced that he granted four Danish castles to various Pomeranian relatives. That was around Easter 1438, and after having dropped that Pomeranian hand grenade in the Danish council, the king loaded the royal treasury onto his ships and sailed off to Gotland. This time, he managed to avoid any serious storms, and he ensconced himself at Visborg Castle in Visby. From now on, this castle would be his base of operations. By now, the leading Danish nobility had had enough of Eric and his antics. They weren't ready to put up with him any longer, and they were certainly not going to accept his cousin Bogislav as his successor. At midsummer 1438, the Danish and the Swedish councils of the realm were supposed to meet the king in Kalmar again. Well, King Eric was a no-show this time as well, so eventually, when they realized Eric wasn't coming, the Aristos started to talk to each other without the king, and one of the things they discussed was getting rid of him, or at least severely limiting his powers. They didn't have any plans to dissolve the Kalmar Union, though. On the contrary, they confirmed that eternal peace should reign between all three Scandinavian kingdoms, and that they should come to each other's aid in case one of them was attacked. They also agreed that none of the three kingdoms was to pick a new king without first negotiating with the other two. Clearly, Eric's attempt at forcing the Danes to accept this Bogislav as his heir had spooked them. And they wanted to make it as official as official could be that this was not the way new kings were to be elected. In the fall of 1438, the Swedish council elected Karl Knutsson Bunde, who spent most of last episode putting down revolts and punishing rebellious peasants, to be the steward of the realm in Sweden. No one suffered from any illusions about Karl Knutsson being too worried about King Eric's opposition or commands, so it looked like Eric of Pomerania was losing his grip over Sweden once and for all. But then Eric had a bit of luck, because the Swedish nobles couldn't help attacking each other. Karl Knutsson wasn't just a very ambitious man, he was also very suspicious and he didn't trust various members of the upper Swedish aristocracy who'd received favors, lands, and commands from King Eric. So instead of waiting for them to prove that they couldn't be trusted, Karl Knutsson decided to strike against them first, before they had a chance to prove they deserved it. At New Year's 1439, he sent troops against Kalmar, Elfsborg, and against his old ally Christian Nilsson Vasa himself, who, in an attempt to show him who was really the boss, was arrested, roughed up, and brought to Vesteros on a sledge in the freezing January weather. There, he was forced to enjoy Karl Knutsson's questionable hospitality until Christian Nilsson Vasa agreed to hand over his castles to his host. Only then was he allowed to return home. After this little stunt, Karl Knutsson and men loyal to him controlled almost all of Sweden. But not quite all. The remaining opponents of the new steward of the realm turned to King Eric on the island of Gotland and asked him to intervene on their behalf. That was music to Eric's ears. The king immediately sent troops and supplies to the few castles still not in Karl Knutsson's hands, and letters were sent out to be read at the things all throughout the country, where Karl Knutsson was described as a brute, an oathbreaker, and, of course, a tormentor of peasants. I'd just like to point out yet again that this wasn't just some random insult. 
the fact that the accusation that your opponent was bad for the peasants was an indication that the peasants actually had some political agency and power, and convincing the peasants that your opponent was bad for them could actually be beneficial to you. To begin with, King Eric and his newfound allies had some success, and quite a few people joined the king against Karl Knutson. The peasants who joined the cause probably remembered Karl Knutson's brutal tactics when putting down all those rebellions the previous year, and the noblemen who flocked to the king's banner didn't like the way Karl Knutson had acted against other nobles. The king even managed to convince the Norwegian council of the realm to send troops across the border into Sweden to assist. But King Eric's cause would soon falter. At the end of April that year, a meeting of the Swedish nobility was called in Stockholm, Beyond its political implications, it's also, rather unlikely, remembered as a major moment in Swedish medieval literature, because Thomas, Bishop of Strängnäs, penned a poem inspired by this meeting called The Song of Freedom. Nowadays, the bishop's poem is largely forgotten, but it was still taught to unsuspecting schoolchildren only a generation or so ago. In it, Bishop Thomas depicted Karl Knutsson as Joshua, fulfilling the liberation of the Swedes, who, like the children of Israel, had been led out of bondage in Egypt, under the rule of King Eric, by the Swedish equivalent of Moses, that is Engelbrecht. The poem, which was sent out to the same things who received the king's propaganda a few months earlier, then went on to urge all Swedes to join in the fight against this latter-day pharaoh, King Eric, and his allies, and take God and justice to their aid, and bring every Dane to the latter for his injustice and violence, thus protecting the fatherland. At first, King Eric met this renewed resistance with a willingness to negotiate, but then he received some disturbing news from Denmark. The Danes had finally gotten around to get rid of Eric, replacing him with his nephew. Hearing this, the king switched tactics and decided to go on the offensive in Sweden. Maybe the talks had always been nothing but a stalling tactic, a way for Eric to strengthen his position, buying him some time while he hoped to bring in more troops from Denmark. But now he realized those troops wouldn't come, and so if he wanted to have any chance of keeping Sweden, he needed to fight for it. So King Eric and his forces landed east of Söderköping on July 25th, 1439. But there was no major battle to resolve the issue once and for all. Instead, the sides once again opened talks, and while they were still ongoing, the Council of the Realm declared Eric officially deposed in Sweden as well, on September 29, 1439. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, in the summer that year, the Danish Council asked King Eric's nephew, Christopher of Bavaria, son of Eric's sister Catherine, to come to Denmark and replace Eric on the throne. You'd think that he'd hesitate to conspire against his uncle, but you'd be wrong. High politics in the Middle Ages could be brutal, and there was no love lost between Eric and Christopher, and especially not between Eric and his sister Catherine, who really disliked her brother the king. Once the Duke of Holstein and Schleswig was on board as well, after being promised Schleswig for his family in perpetuity, the Danes could go ahead and elect Christopher. But since no one kingdom in the Union was supposed to elect a new king alone without consulting with the other two, Christopher was only elected steward of the realm to begin with. Christopher, who belonged to a Bavarian ducal family and who had served as a military commander in the army of the Holy Roman Emperor, was at the Holy Roman Diet in Nuremberg when the Danish offer reached him. As is so often the case in situations like these, the only qualification Christopher had for the job was the fact that his uncle was the current king of the three Scandinavian kingdoms. 
when the 23-year-old Christopher arrived in his new realm in the late summer of 1439, he hadn't even visited Denmark more than once, when he was 18, back in 1434. The next step was supposed to be a grand meeting of Scandinavian nobles in Kalmar, the epicenter of grand meetings lately. And there Christopher was supposed to be officially elected and crowned king of all three kingdoms. But the Danish council was reached by worrying news that King Eric, or soon to be ex-King Eric, was stirring up trouble, trying to form an alliance with Prussia and the Netherlands to attack Denmark and take control over the Ersund Strait, thus blocking the gateway to the Baltic Sea, disrupting trade and ruining the day for a lot of people. So they decided that they couldn't wait. They had to settle the issue of who would be king of Denmark as soon as possible. That's why Christopher was elected king of Denmark already at the Thing in Viborg on April 9th, 1440. The Swedes also decided to speed up the process of making Christopher king of Sweden. But since the need for haste was mutual, the Swedish council decided to squeeze some concessions out of the new king. Christopher was eventually elected king of Sweden in October 1440 on the condition that he'd accept a list of demands about giving the Swedish council of the realm more power. This included provisions that the council would pick its own members, that they were to appoint governors of Sweden, and that the king should move between the three kingdoms continuously. Sweden even got its own budget, which Eric had never agreed to, and it was decided that any surplus from that budget could only be used in Sweden. Christopher also had to promise to return Gotland to Sweden. At the moment, ex-king Eric still held on to the island and showed no signs of wanting to give it up. Also, any future conquests in the east would become Swedish possessions, both politically and ecclesiastically. The peace with the Russians was fragile and the Teutonic order seemed weak, and so the Swedes hoped to be able to expand south of the Gulf of Finland. All of this seriously undermined royal power in Sweden, and it was no doubt a hard pill to swallow. But in the end, Christopher did. So on August 16th, 1441, Christopher arrived in Sweden for the very first time. He landed in Kalmar, where else, and was led in procession to the cathedral where the Archbishop of Sweden gave a speech in his honour. From there, the newly elected king sailed to Stockholm, where a crowd of nobles greeted him, led by none other than Karl Knutsson Bunde himself. King Christopher and Karl Knutsson walked in through the south gate of Stockholm, arm in arm, symbolising their friendship. And when they reached the castle, Karl Knutsson formally handed it over to the king. On September 14th, Christopher was crowned king of Sweden in Uppsala Cathedral by the archbishop. After the coronation, Christopher conducted the first ever known dubbing of knights in Sweden. He knighted 76 people, most of them Swedes, including Karl Knutsson Bunde, and the man who'd murdered Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson. But Karl Knutsson wasn't satisfied with just this new fancy title of knight. In the last years of King Eric's reign, Karl Knutsson had been the de facto ruler of Sweden, and he wanted compensation for relinquishing that power and status. And King Christopher wasn't unreasonable, and he definitely wasn't stupid, so for the sake of keeping the peace in Sweden, he agreed to give Karl Knutsson Finland and the island of Öland, he also agreed to make Karl Knutsson Lord High Steward of Sweden, giving him a combined power of Prime Minister, Justice and Finance Ministers. Those were some serious concessions, and Christopher wasn't blind to the fact that even though Karl Knutsson might have been satisfied at the moment, he now had a power base strong enough to potentially challenge the king in the future. 
and King Christopher wasn't the only one to be worried. During the interregnum between Eric and Christopher, when Karl Knudsen had been in charge, there were a lot of nobles who had tasted his wrath, and there were plenty of others who had seen it happen and who were worried it may happen to them if they annoyed Karl Knudsen in some way. One of the nobles who opposed Karl Knudsen was his old buddy, Christian Nilsson Vasa. He demanded compensation for the rough and humiliating way Karl Knudsen had treated him, ransacking his home and bringing him to Vesteros on that freezing sled ride not to mention all the property he'd been forced to relinquish in order to be allowed to go home again. King Christopher needed little convincing. He jumped at the opportunity to undercut Karl Knudsen, removing him from the steward position and giving it back to Christian Nilsson Vasa. Karl Knudsen was also obligated to pay heavy fines, including all the incomes from several regions in Finland for many years to come. Karl Knudsen also had to choose between either Turku or Viborg castles. He could no longer keep both. He chose Viborg far to the east. There he sat and bided his time, no doubt planning his revenge on his enemies and the king who double-crossed him. Karl Knudsen's rivals were now in control of Sweden, and they divided the spoils, governorships and commands between them. King Christopher kept his promise and didn't appoint any foreigners to these positions in Sweden. This, and the fact that he would spend quite a lot of time in Sweden, meant that Christopher became a well-liked king among the Swedish nobles he'd left to run the country for him. After getting crowned and settling his Swedish affairs, King Christopher moved on to Norway, where he was crowned king at Oslo Cathedral in 1442. That was the first and would turn out to be the last time Christopher ever set foot in Norway. Just like Eric of Pomerania, Christopher would rule Norway remotely from Denmark, and this would become established practice for hundreds of years to come. Unlike Sweden, the Norwegian Council of the Realm didn't demand or get any more formal powers under Christopher of Bavaria. The king appointed Danes and foreigners as members of the Norwegian Council and as governors and castle commanders. Some scholars see this as a reflection of the Norwegian demographic crisis after the plague, the Norwegians just didn't have the muscle to flex against the king, like the Swedes did, not even against a relatively reasonable king like Christopher. Christopher got his third and last coronation on New Year's Day 1443, when he was crowned king of Denmark at Ribe Cathedral. It was a grand affair, led by the Archbishop of Lund, and even though various German nobles played a prominent part in the ceremony itself, usually carrying various pieces of regalia, the crown, scepter, sword and that sort of thing, Christopher would rule Denmark in agreement with the Danish nobility and not repeat his predecessor's mistake of giving too much power to German nobles in Denmark. In the coronation documentation, Christopher is called Arch-King. It's a little unclear what that's supposed to mean, and he's also the only Scandinavian king ever given that title. Some people, especially slightly paranoid skeptics of the Kalmar Union, have interpreted it as a Danish way to impose symbolic supremacy of Denmark over Norway and Sweden, but it could just as well have been a way for the Danes to try and impress all those visiting German nobles from richer and more populous principalities with a slightly inflated title. Before Christopher could claim control over all of Denmark, though, there was one last obstacle to take care of. 
A peasant revolt broke out at the same spring in northern Jutland. Angry mobs of peasants, possibly incited by now ex-King Eric, attacked several mansions belonging to local nobles, and even caught and beat to death the commander of the castle at Aalborg. But the revolt was brutally put down by Christopher, and on June 8th, the last remaining peasants made a last stand at St. Jonsbjell, or St. George's Mountain, a place with no known connection to St. George, and definitely not a mountain, where they were all killed. To really drive home the point that he was now in charge, Christopher didn't allow for the bodies of the leaders to be buried. Instead, they were left out in the open to be eaten by wild animals outside the ramparts of Aalborg Castle. So now, Christopher was properly crowned king in all three of his Scandinavian kingdoms. But if the various nobles who were manoeuvring to get rid of Eric and place his nephew on the throne instead thought that Eric of Pomerania would back down just because Christopher had been officially installed on his throne, they were wrong. Once he'd been deposed, Eric of Pomerania withdrew to his base on the island of Gotland and the castle of Wiesborg. There, he continued his struggle to reclaim his position as king of the Kalmar Union, but in practice he was just a glorified pirate, spending the next few years attacking ships in the Baltic Sea, doing what he could to stir the pot. Ex-King Eric still enjoyed some support both in Denmark and Sweden though, and he still tried to convince his foreign allies to invade and take control over the Ersen Strait. He promised the Dutch trading privileges at expense of the Hansa if they would agree to support him and the Dutch actually did send warships to the Baltic Sea. But Christopher managed to take control of the castles that could block the strait, and the Dutch fleet didn't do much damage. Instead, a compromise was reached, giving some Hansa towns toll-free passage in the Ersen Strait, and the Dutch the right to some limited trade in Denmark. Everyone was happy, except Eric, who remained a former king. Ex-King Eric would actually prove to be the largest headache for Christopher during his reign. Eric had a considerable fleet, and he was protected by the strong walls of Visby and the castle of Visborg. Eric let his pirates pay for themselves by doing what pirates do best, attacking and plundering ships. With time, Eric and his fleet developed a virtual blockade of overseas trade with the Kalmar Union. Eric and his pirates took no pity on his former subjects, and the crew on the unfortunate ships Eric's pirates caught were all killed unless they were notable people who could be ransomed for money. This was obviously an untenable situation, and something needed to be done to get rid of the king-turned-pirate. But since Eric had such a strong military position, King Christopher didn't want to risk a direct attack. Instead, he tried to negotiate with his uncle, but Eric wasn't interested. He was increasingly unhinged, demanding to get his three kingdoms back, while at the same time, continuing his piracy side gig. Then, in early summer 1446, a Swedish fleet attacked Gotland and captured the island itself fairly easily. But even though they didn't take the city of Visby or its castle, they probably weren't too unhappy about the result, as they couldn't realistically have thought they'd be able to capture the castle anyway. It was mostly a way to force ex-King Eric to negotiate. King Christopher himself arrived in Gotland soon thereafter together with another 2,000 soldiers. This finally convinced Eric that he had to talk to Christopher, and so to begin with, the king and the ex-king reached an agreement for 18 months of truce without any piracy or blockading. But in the end, it wasn't military strength that managed to evict ex-king Eric from Gotland. 
Instead, it was news from Pomerania, the country of his birth, that did the trick. In December 1446, so while the truce with King Christopher was still in effect, Duke Bogislav, the cousin Eric had wanted to make his heir, died. That was sad, of course, but it also meant that the position of reigning duke opened up. Eric was eventually convinced to take up the position, giving up both on his dream of reclaiming the Scandinavian thrones and his day job as a pirate in the Baltic Sea. King Christopher was very pleased with this development, and in late 1447, he was about to go to Jönköping in southern Sweden to meet the Swedish council to strategize about how to get Eric to accept the job opening in Pomerania. The king spent Christmas in Helsingborg on the eastern shore of the Öresund Strait, but in the last days of 1447, he suddenly fell ill. By January 4th, he was in such a bad condition that he felt he needed to set up his last will and testament. And it was a, a good thing that he did, because the following day, the eve of Holy Three Kings, Christopher of Bavaria died. His death was unexpected, since he was only 31 years old, and had seemed to be healthy enough. Swedish propaganda, written in the years following Christopher's death, and colored by political developments we'll talk more about next time, describes Christopher of Bavaria as small, chubby, and lecherous. He's described as a drunkard and a gambler who had a foul mouth and who liked to stir up trouble. The insistence on calling him Christopher of Bavaria, just like Eric was called Eric of Pomerania, is a not-so-subtle attempt to paint him as a foreigner, unworthy and unfit to reign over Sweden. It was also said that the harvests were bad during King Christopher's reign, which is implied to be the king's fault, because not even God liked him. The day he died, a storm hit the country, but when news of the king's death spread, the tears shed were easily counted. It should be noted, though, that there is nothing to back up this negative image about Christopher or his reign. We definitely don't know what the weather was like on the day he died. In fact, even though he reigned for a relatively short time, Christopher generally proved to be a capable king. And when he was still on the throne, he was popular among most of his subjects, with the possible exception of the surviving peasant population in northern Jutland. The Danish nobility certainly liked him, and so did many Norwegians. King Christopher's brief reign was characterized by calm and general contentment in Norway, but like in Sweden, also here, later historiography has painted the king in darker colors than he really deserves. From the point of view of the Swedish aristocracy, the reign of Christopher of Bavaria was actually a great time, perhaps even the peak of the Kalmar Union. The king was agreeable, willing to accept that they ran the place for him without him interfering too much. Christopher also found the perfect balance of staying away a lot, but not so much that he neglected Sweden and made the local nobles feel abandoned and therefore humiliated. The most notable remnant of Christopher's reign in Sweden was Christopher's Law, an edited version of the previous law code which was introduced during his reign and that remained largely valid until the 18th century. But Christopher shouldn't be seen as some major legal mind or lawgiver. This new law code wasn't much different from the old one, and it probably wasn't even introduced on the king's initiative. The biggest difference was that the limitations on the king's right to appoint governors and castle commanders was introduced into explicit law. Another notable legal decision in King Christopher's reign was made already in 1442, at the meeting in the Swedish town of Lödöse on the west coast, close to where the three kingdoms met. At that assembly, a number of regulations aimed at minimizing the risk of future peasant revolts were issued. 
But even though these included a renewed ban on carrying weapons in public, at the thing or at parties, as well as reminders to the peasants to respect their betters, it also reminded the royal officials that they had to follow the law and treat the peasantry with the respect that they deserved. In addition, the rule against carrying weapons around explicitly included everyone, both peasants and noblemen. Whether these regulations were upheld we don't know, and we can doubt it, but at least Christopher of Bavaria tried to get rid of the source of peasant resentment as well as their means to act on those resentments. And it should be noted that the rest of his reign was free from the kind of peasant rebellions that had plagued Scandinavia for so many years in the reign of King Eric of Pomerania. So you may ask yourself, why, if Christopher of Bavaria was such a great king, who left the nobility to their own devices and didn't provoke any peasant rebellions, was he vilified as a foul-mouthed drunkard only a few years after his death? Well, you'll just have to tune in next time to find out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian History-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life, Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.